Hello, health investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Adrian Chavez. Adrian holds a doctorate in nutrition and health promotion, where his research was focused on creating lifestyle interventions for the prevention of heart disease and type 2 diabetes. After his PhD, he had plans of staying in academic research, but was frustrated with the lack of impact that his work was having and decided to start creating courses, programs, and free content online. Over the past six years since leaving academia, Adrian has helped thousands of people through his courses and programs and has impacted many more through the free content he puts out through his podcast, social media, and lectures on various topics related to nutrition and health. You can find him on Instagram at Dr. Adrian Chavez and also via the Nutrition Science Podcast, which he is the host of. In the episode, Adrian busts myths about cholesterol, intermittent fasting, artificial sweeteners, added sugar, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think that eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store. That is until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, Visit thehealthinvestment.com slash thrivemarket, or just click through the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Adrian. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best, without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Adrian. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was just mentioning off air, as I mentioned to a lot of guests, I found you on Instagram. I think a lot of people, if they know you, have maybe connected with you there. But there's several guests I've had on who I do kind of a deep dive into their Instagram account or their website, whatever it is, however I found them. And yours is a wealth of information. You have so many story highlights posts. Um, you're constantly doing live stories and, you know, daily stories, I guess you would call them, but I will link your Instagram and other social media 
in the show notes. And we'll talk about that at the end. So people can definitely follow and find you. But I can't wait to just kind of break down today a lot of the myths and misconceptions that people are struggling with out there in terms of nutrition, mostly. Yeah, that seems to be a large part of my job and what I get interviewed about nowadays. I mean, I I have to if I don't do it on my social, I end up having to do it with like clients that I work with where I just have to talk to them specifically about why all these uh, belief systems are, are not really rooted in science. So uh, happy to do that here today. Awesome. Could you start off just by sharing with us your background and specifically what led you to get a PhD in nutrition? Yeah, so I started off uh, as an exercise science major during my undergrad and and master's degree. And it was during my master's, I had always read books about nutrition. I read all these, you know, everything on the shelves I had basically read and all the documentaries and things like I considered myself a a avid nutrition, you know, researcher, like solo researcher, if you will. Um, But at that point, uh, I took, uh, I, I had some health issues myself, like I had a GI issue that I was able to pretty much like get rid of by changing my nutrition. And before that, I was like eating like a bodybuilder diet, bunch of protein. That's all I was really focused on. And that showed me that nutrition like had a more broad application outside of like sports. It, it was more of a, a a medicine, if you will, like a form of medicine that really isn't used as much as it should be. So that's what really got me into nutrition. I took a couple graduate classes at that point, decided that I was going to go ahead and switch like I was planning on getting a PhD in like biomechanics and exercise physiology because I wanted to work with uh, athletes in like specifically basketball players and train them and kind of help with like athlete development type stuff but this like understanding of what nutrition like what it could do overall um, in terms of health and public health kind of drew me in that direction and like I said I took a couple of classes applied for a few PhD programs uh, got into the one the one that I it was basically the only one I was going to go to um, if it, if they accepted me. And, and that led me to, you know, 12 years ago uh, to where I am today. And now, uh, you know, I did a PhD, finished that, got online, had no idea what was going on on Instagram. Like I, I only knew academic nutrition and academic research. And I was blown away by the amount of things that people believed that was just completely not true, not based in science, just marketing uh, or, you know, promoting some type of belief system. And that is what kind of drove a lot of uh, the content that I do on Instagram and also, you know, in various other channels where a lot of it, you know, is, is me trying to explain why some of this information is not entirely accurate so that people can really understand nutrition. Uh, you know, one of my my main passion is like teaching on this topic because I, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to understand it. And, and my goal is to like simplify it as best as I can for people. And it, it the biggest barrier is just the stuff that people believe and that they learn online or through books. You know, popular books are also a very major source of nutrition misinformation. TV shows, radio shows, like pretty much most of the major uh, outlets where we're exposed to information about nutrition are providing misinformation in some way, way, shape or form, usually to sell you into a product or a program or, you know, get you on a keto diet or sell you some magic supplements. And uh, it's really, you know, damaging people's health, in my opinion, uh, that level of misinformation. Mm -hmm. And leading to what I see, and I'm sure you see as well, of just kind of decision fatigue of 
there's so much out there or analysis paralysis. I don't know what you would call yeah. it, but there's so much coming at you and it takes so much energy to sift through all the noise and to try to figure out what works and what doesn't. And so then people I think can throw their hands up and just say, whatever, I, don't, I can't figure it out. I'll just do nothing. Yep. Um, Cause it's, there's just a lot. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And that's uh, kind of leads me into another topic that you mentioned that we wanted to, you wanted to talk about, um, you know, on my Instagram profile, I, I put in my, like uh, in my profile that I'm an anti-biohacker quote unquote. And I did this couple of posts about it. Um, but it really comes down, it comes from that, that perspective is like this whole biohacker community is overcomplicating things, like making you think you have to go cold plunge and, and get into a sauna and take these random supplements for quote unquote brain health and drink mushroom coffee and all this other crap. And all of that stuff, like there's no evidence for any of that stuff really in terms of how it's going to improve our overall health. And most people are missing the boat on the important things that actually matter, like getting physical activity on a regular basis, making sure that you're eating an overall balanced diet. You don't need to be fasting all day and eating, you know, keto carnivore one meal a day type thing. Like that is, that is the biohacker, you know, approach to like really complicating things and having these magical solutions. And, and none of that stuff is based in actual science. Um, science we know is, you know, pretty, pretty boring in terms of what improves our health. It's, you know, sleep and exercising on a regular basis, eating fruits and vegetables, making sure that you're not overeating um, calories overall, you know, eating nutrient dense foods. Like it's, it's really boring. And so that's why so many people are selling all these magical, you know, sexy sounding solutions and all these biohacks. But the reality is that the our the true health really comes from the boring stuff that that isn't a biohack. Mm -hmm. I've said that before, and then that's kind of offended people that it should be boring because then they say, "Why do you say that?" And I mean, it's it's true, but I think that's actually great news. I don't think that's bad news that it's boring. And so when I say that, I'm saying it more as this is great, great news. But people still take offense to that as they take offense to kind of everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean the the truth is that it, it then it puts the like it's simple and boring for the most part. Like the the things yeah. that you have to do are simple and boring, and you have to do them consistently. And so if you believe that it's not that, and it's some other magical solution that you haven't found, it takes the blame off of you. And that's mm -hmm. why that works so well as a marketing tool. And, you know, I've studied marketing quite a bit when I first started my online business. Like I, I took a bunch of marketing courses and stuff and I was just kind of sickened by the way that they teach people how to promote stuff in, in the nutrition space. It's really like take advantage of people's um, tendency to seek out a magic solution and sell them one <laughs> and, 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 mm -hmm. you know, tell everyone that you have this magic solution and you have this, you know, that there's a secret way to do, to do things. And the reality is it's, it's just not that it's, it's, right. it's like you mentioned the boring stuff that, that needs to be done over and over again for the rest of your life. There's no start yeah. and end date. You, you gotta eat well the rest of your life. There's no 12 week shred that's going to change your life forever. Um, and no one wants to really hear that. So yeah. pe people that, that doesn't work well for making money in terms of, um, an online business, you know, kind of having that type of message. 
I posted something one time to give any new thing you're going to try the hundred year test and ask yourself, could I do this for a hundred years? And that really pissed people off because they were like, I don't want to do anything for a hundred years. And I was like, no, no, it's meant to be again. It, it's going to be so simple. I mean, can you buy some vegetables and wash them and eat them? I'm talking about the simplest stuff. I'm not saying because people then jump to these fads and juice cleanses and detoxes and all these things. I'm, I'm not saying do those for a hundred years. I'm saying give it this litmus test and the things you should be doing, drinking water, going for daily walks. I mean, those are things you are going to need to do forever, but that term consistency or, you know, patience, those are tough. And especially in light of all of these quick fixes. Yeah, I mean, why would you why would you sign up to do something for a hundred years when <laughs> you can never eat a carb again and you'll you'll live forever? Um, right. You know, the, that's the <laughs> that's way true. that's the way that people you know why why would you go through all this trouble of doing all that stuff if all you do is you know avoid seed oils and you'll live to a hundred? Um, that's like people again. This is why it's so it's such an attractive message and it gets so much attention. Is like when you just when you blame one thing and turn it into something simple, that's that's another, from a psychological standpoint, as a consumer, you want an easy answer. So if someone gives you an easy answer saying, well, seed oils are poison, instead of saying, like, actually explaining, you know, the pros and cons of, of consuming this food, it's much easier and much more attractive message to tell people that something's poison. And that helps people to, or that, that, that's the type of message that we psychologically just naturally gravitate towards. And that's what kind of leads to so many extreme messages and so much misinformation online is because as consumers, we want an easy answer and people don't care if it's correct. They're happy to provide an easy answer or, or an extreme message to, to simplify that choice. Cause it takes away the choice for you. If someone tells you it's poison same thing, like let's take dairy, for example. If someone tells you dairy is poison and you don't eat it, it, it makes that choice easy for you. Oh, it's poison. I don't eat it. But if someone says, hey, it, it might increase the risk of, of certain cancers, but also can reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. And overall, you know, it seems to provide some decent nutrients if you enjoy it. Um, you know, that's harder to make a decision. Now, should I eat dairy or not? I don't know. Um, no mm. one told me it's poison or no one told me that it's magical, you know, elixir for everything in life. And so that's why those messages, those extreme messages tend to just get more attention overall is because we as consumers just kind of gravitate towards the, the, the answer that's made up for us. Mm -hmm. Right. Simple. We gravitate towards kind of like black and white, simple Yep, you um, don't have to make a decision because it's someone else made it for you. They told you that dairy is poison, and you don't have to think about whether or not you should, you know, have cheese in your food again because they scared you out of it. And that it it works like it helps, or like consumers want to hear that type of stuff, but that's not nutrition at all. Mm -hmm. Like that's not how it works. Yeah, I guess then for anyone listening, if you've seeing these sort of extreme messages from somebody you're following, that would be a red flag and then go over to your account and find, dig deeper into the truth. Because really, I think what we're going to hear from you today with a lot of these things, they're nuanced and it's not just a yes or no answer. There's a lot of 
yes and or yes but or no but. And so if somebody's just saying, yes, eat this or no, don't eat this, that's probably a red flag. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, on that topic, um, we're going to get to as many as we can. I gave you a long list of myths and misconceptions that I see out there and that you've posted about on your Instagram. Um, And so what I'm hoping is we can go through these topics one by one and have you share what are the biggest myths myths and misconceptions you hear surrounding the topic versus the actual truth. And I'm not sure we're going to get to all of them. So what I would tell listeners is if there's a topic we don't cover today, head over to Adrian's Instagram because I pulled most of these from your story highlights. And so you probably cover them there if you didn't cover them here today. So does that sound fair? Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Okay, cool. Let's get into them. Let's get into it. Okay, so let's get started. What are myths and misconceptions you hear about cholesterol versus what is the actual truth? So people say that cholesterol doesn't matter, like LDL cholesterol, having a higher LDL cholesterol doesn't matter. It's not harmful. Um, And then eating cholesterol doesn't increase cholesterol. That's true. Like eating more cholesterol from your diet generally doesn't increase cholesterol. It can in some people, but it generally doesn't. So like you shouldn't avoid eggs because of the cholesterol level. That's not an issue. But um, having a high LDL cholesterol in your blood is associated with higher risk of heart disease because these LDL particles can can get into your blood vessels. They can deposit cholesterol. They can lead to the production of or, or the recruitment of inflammatory cytokines that go in and try to repair that damage and then lead to um, a plaque. And, and that can that's like what drives what's called atherosclerosis, which is a type of cardiovascular disease where plaque buildup kind of blocks off blood flow and at some point usually breaks off and causes um, a heart attack. So we want to avoid that. That's the most common cause of death in our in our country is, you know, cardiovascular disease and LDL cholesterol is an important marker for cardiovascular disease. Now, it's more complicated than that because LDL cholesterol itself doesn't seem to be the most important marker, it's the amount of cholesterol particles that we have in our system. So LDL cholesterol tells us the total amount of cholesterol that's floating around, but LDL particle number seems to be a better measure um, of, of actual risk because if we have a whole bunch of small particles floating around, they're more likely to contribute to the development of that type of plaque. So there's like there's a lot of nuance to cholesterol as a risk factor. Some people will go in and say LDL cholesterol doesn't matter because there's these other risk factors that are more important. So don't pay attention to it. Um, and that's what a lot of the carnivore and low carb community, they, they try to get people to not pay attention to LDL cholesterol because in general, an animal based diet, one higher in saturated fat, one higher in butter, one higher in fat from animal foods is going to raise LDL cholesterol on average. The, the variation is going to be dramatic between person to person and largely dependent on genetics. So one person who eats more more saturated fat might have a five times increased risk of LDL cholesterol while another might just barely see a bump. And Hmm. this is where a lot of the misinformation comes from because people will say, oh, I don't have high cholesterol and I eat, you know, a bunch of steak and butter. There's a lot of um, genetic variation in that. And then there's also just more nuance to the uh, to the marker itself and how it contributes to um, risk. And a lot of people try to use that gray area to completely discredit cholesterol as a risk factor. 
but it's well established that based on multiple you know studies of uh, genetic factors. This is one of the most important like uh, types of evidence that we have, where people who have lower cholesterol levels genetically, like much lower, have lower rates of heart disease. And if it wasn't cholesterol, if cholesterol wasn't a risk factor, that wouldn't be the case. And that that pretty much establishes that hey, having too high of a cholesterol is probably going to be harmful overall, all other things, you know, equal. And so, you know, we really, it's, it frustrates me because I see a lot of people who follow the low carb community and they have cholesterol levels of three, 400, which is three, four times where you want to be. And those people are going to develop heart disease most likely, or they're going to increase their risk of heart disease over time because, um, cholesterol leads to this process and it takes time. So a lot of them say, Oh, I have no heart disease right now. And and a lot of the people in the carnivore community will brag about that. Like, Oh, I, I, you know, I have a 400, uh, 400 cholesterol and I don't have heart disease. It takes time. This is something Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen overnight. And so that's another one where misinformation is used to kind of, uh, explain you know or or justify it where someone will say i don't have heart disease and my cholesterol 600 so this is wrong and and it's really that's just not how it works it takes time to develop and and i think in 10 to 15 years we're going to see a lot of people who follow those dietary patterns most likely have you know higher rates of heart disease as a result and it's it's all based on misinformation of, of people telling them to ignore an important you know heart disease risk factor Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. Hmm. Okay. So LDL matters. LDL particle number, really important mm-hmm. to get figured out with your cardiologist. That's who would do that test. Yep. Yep. And okay. uh, definitely, you know, work on that with your cardiologist. It, it, not all of them are going to measure. Um, so LDL particle or ApoB is how you can measure that and, and get a little bit more detailed. Most of them though, if you have high LDL, they're just going to prescribe because usually not all the time, but high LDL is usually going to, um, be uh, a very good marker of particle number and it's just cheaper to measure so that's why sometimes in the um you know in the conventional medicine space quote unquote they won't measure particle number because it's just cheaper to measure ldo and and usually they they correlate with one another Mm -hmm. what about diet when it comes to high cholesterol you mentioned eating tons of saturated fat not the best go-to. As yeah, definitely. Saturated fat yeah. and fiber are pretty much, I mean, those are the two main things that contribute or can, can alter cholesterol levels. So 
that's why these, you know, carnivore diets can really bump things up into the four, five, six hundreds is because they're, they have no fiber and they're high in saturated fat. Those are the two main dietary components that can improve cholesterol levels. Everything else is going to make a marginal difference compared to those two. So eating more fiber, fiber binds to bile in our intestines and helps remove that. And when, when, um, when we poop out bile, essentially that's bound to fiber, our liver will take up cholesterol from the blood in order to make new bile and use that bile for digestion. And so through that pathway, fiber like directly reduces cholesterol level. Okay. Awesome. So <laughs> more fiber, less saturated fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the okay. two main, main factors there. Okay. Awesome. What about myths surrounding intermittent fasting or some people call it time restricted feeding versus what's actually true? Yeah. So with that one, it's really simple. Like it, when calories are equated, there is no difference between outcomes with intermittent fasting and with traditional caloric restriction. So when they take people and they feed them the same amount of calories and one eats through 16 hours and one eats through 12, weight loss is the same. All cardiovascular risk factor improvements are the same. So what this tells us is that it really, you know, comes down to calories in terms of overall, uh, you know, response. And uh, if you like doing intermittent fasting because it helps you eat less calories, that is the case for a lot of people. And, and that's really where, you know, people who say intermittent fasting changed their lives and, and it, it helped them so much. It's usually because they just ate less calories and it was an easier way for them to control their calories and actually paying attention to the amount that they were eating. Shortening your feeding window, which is intermittent fasting, um, can be a helpful tool for some people when they're trying to lose weight, but it's absolutely not necessary. There is no magic longevity benefits or, or autoimmune benefits or anything like that. Uh, it, it, there, there's no magic benefits to it. It's just a tool that can help some people reduce their calorie intake so that they can lose weight in those, that weight loss tends to have health improvements. I see some people talking about the benefits of just a 12 hour fast overnight to just give your body time to rest and digest, they call it. So stop eating, let's say at 8 PM and eat again at 8 AM. Do you think there's any benefit to that of giving yourself a longer time period overnight not to be digesting food? Not necessarily. Food? The only thing that we've sh- that that is shown like a, a actual benefit in terms of intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding is not eating too close to bedtime and having mm-hmm. your meals shifted earlier in the day. And the reason that this likely seems to have a benefit is because we we, our metabolism is more active, if you will, it's not the proper term, but it's an easy to understand term. The metabolism is, is more active during the day when we're more active. So if we're eating all of our calories at night and our metabolism slowing down, and that's when we're eating all of our energy, it, it seems to have negative metal, metabolic health effects and seems to actually contribute to uh, a, a small amount of additional weight gain because we probably store a little bit more of those calories because we are taking them in as we're about to go to bed or closer to that time where our metabolism is slowing. So that is, when, in terms of time-restricted feeding, the only recommendation, and, and again, this is a, a marginal benefit overall, but if the best thing to do for most people would be not waiting till 8 a.m., but kind of shifting that you know, that window down to where their last meal is at like six. And that is how, you know, the the shift 
can improve metabolic health a little bit. And, and again, the, the differences are, there are differences in multiple studies, but it's not this massive difference where if you eat at night, you're going to gain a bunch of weight. It's a small difference where if you're eating later in the day versus earlier in the day, most of your calories, that seems to have a negative effect on metabolic health. So my recommendation there would be if you're going to do any type of intermittent fasting, do it to where your last meal of the day is pushed back or pushed you know, forward and you're eating earlier. This doesn't work for most people in their schedule and that's fine. <laughs> that's why I yeah. say like at the end of the day, you got to do what works for you and eating at six isn't going to work for everyone. And the, the actual benefit from doing that is pretty marginal. Um, but overall, in terms of like having a certain number of hours overnight, we, we don't really see any major benefit there. I think that doing that, and this is my own personal opinion based on working with a lot of people and seeing people who fasted and fasting myself sometimes, is I think that going um, not even 12 hours, like 14 or 16 sometimes, if you're not used to it, can help you better regulate your appetite when you haven't had mm -hmm. food for a long time. Like, for example, yeah. if I'm traveling, I used to do a lot of fasting because before a lot of these studies came out, because I've been in this field for a while, like I read about fasting over a decade ago, and I did a lot of fasting over a decade ago because um, a lot of the comparison studies weren't out, and it seemed to be pretty effective. And it worked for me. I would just wait to eat breakfast until, you know, 12, and I, I could stay more lean. Um it wasn't until later on that, you know, these comparison studies started getting published. I was like, oh, this makes sense. I'm just eating less. It's, there's no magical thing to it. Um, but uh, so, so, you know, if you're um, if you're going to do it, I recommend doing, you know, that earlier window. But again, whatever works for your schedule is going to be best. Whatever you can stick to is going to be best. And it's not going to be this massive difference if you're going a certain number of hours overnight, it seems. Um, but again, from a behavior standpoint, I think that learning to go for a period of time without food, there can be some value in that. Like when I travel and if there's no good options, like I'm not ravenous <laughs> to, to get food yeah. because I've fasted a lot. So it kind of helps um, over time to help you um, kind of dip into the stored energy more easily so that you're not as hungry um, when you have gone a, a period of time without food. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. What about artificial sweeteners? Um, artificial sweeteners is a very broad topic overall. Like there's different types of artificial sweeteners, but you know, the main ones that people are thinking about are like the sweet and low and, and, uh, you know, the, the, what are the yellow, uh, green and pink Undone? packets or whatever, oh. um, aspartame yeah. and, and, uh, acesulfame K is another one. Uh, and so these are the ones that are kind of the most demonized. And there's there's evidence of rat studies to show that they can cause harm at very high levels. Um, in human studies, people drinking these don't it doesn't affect metabolism. This is a, a common you know myth around this is it, it negatively affects metabolism and and it, and it impacts insulin sensitivity. Like that's not true at all. Um, in terms of cancer, like there's some studies in animals that show that very high doses might slightly increase certain types of cancers, um, but that's very high doses. So it, we don't really expect that to be the case if you're drinking like, you know, one can or, or one, um, you know, energy drink with some artificial sweeteners or one Diet Coke or a couple of Diet Cokes a day or something like that. Like the, the amounts that are used in animal studies are much, much higher because they're meant to identify toxic doses. And so in human studies where people are fed 
different types of artificial sweeteners. We don't see any major impact on the microbiome. We don't see any major impact on uh, on metabolism. So um, they don't seem to be incredibly harmful overall. And what we do see is when we when you take someone who's drinking, you know, a sugar sweetened beverage, something that's not an artificially sweetened beverage, and they go to drinking an artificially sweetened beverage, they consume less calories, and there's a positive impact on metabolic health. So although these artificial sweeteners aren't necessarily like, they're not going to improve health on their own, when someone takes these in, as opposed to the regular sweetener, or the sweetened beverage that they would have probably otherwise drink, that seems to be a better option. So there's a lot of demonization around them because um, they're artificial. And so like the wellness community says, oh, you should avoid these at all costs. They're going to harm your health because they're made in a factory. You know, that's kind of that belief system from, from that whole um, industry. But the reality is we don't see any major negative health effects from them. And if they help you to consume something that's not, you know, besides a Coke that has, you know, 40 grams of added sugar, there's going to be some positive health effects from, from a weight standpoint, from a, from a metabolism standpoint overall over the course of time. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people get the misconception that, that if you don't demonize them, you're promoting them and it's not necessarily promoting them. It's like, what are you looking at as an alternative that artificial sweeteners Diet Coke, for example, is a better option than Coke. So mm -hmm. it's not that, you know, they're healthy or, you know, quote unquote healthy in any way. It's just that if you're going to be doing something, if you want that taste, a Diet Coke is a better option and it's not going to kill you. So it's okay to have that in, in uh, as a part of your diet in order to help you kind of stick to, uh, you know, overall healthier eating plan. Mm-hmm. I guess then related to that, you mentioned the term added sugar. So I see some people saying added sugar, don't worry about it. Other people saying only look at added sugar. What What's your recommendation in terms of that? Eating eating too much added sugar is not a good thing. It's a, it's a concentrated source of calories. So if you're eating foods that have a lot of added sugar, um, it, it can contribute to overall eating too many calories, too much energy, and that, that leading to a negative effect on your metabolism, leading you to, causing you to gain weight. Um, but we have to understand context in this scenario as well. Now, if you're looking at someone who's, let's say, for example, trains really, really hard every single day and they're running and, and lifting and doing all these other you know, activities, having added sugar is not going to have probably any negative health impact for them because their body's going to take that sugar and use it for fuel pretty quickly and, and put it into storage and it's not going to cause, you know, quote unquote damage. What cause it, what, what can be harmful when it comes to sugar is if we're taking in too much sugar and it's sitting in our blood for too long because we're not active enough to get rid of it. And that leads to elevated levels of blood sugar for long periods of time throughout the day because our metabolism isn't, isn't working that well, or we're eating too many calories overall, that's when sugar can become more problematic. And, and again, this, this depends on context, like someone who's super active, I don't, added sugar is less of a problem, less of something to really be concerned about. But if you're not that active and you're, you're an added sugar leads to an overconsumption of calories, that's when it can be a problem. And same thing with added fats. Like a lot of people talk about added sugars, like added fats and oils of any type um, as well can be a concentrated source of calories that can cause you to easily overeat. And that's when 
that's when these things become more problematic, not necessarily in their own. Like if you have two grams of added sugar in a, in a meal, it doesn't matter. It's not going to make a big difference. But if you're having, you know, 20 as a drink alongside your meal, that's causing you to eat, you know, another extra hundred, you know, hundred or so calories at every meal. And that leads to you having 300 calories of extra, uh, you know, sugar throughout the day and, and increasing your, your weight over time, that's going to affect your metabolism in a negative way. And that's, you know, that's when it can be more problematic. So it's not this, again, it's not this black or white thing. It's, you know, having too many added sugars that, that is going to cause your body to um, have too many calories. And those sugars are probably going to circulate a little bit longer in your bloodstream and, and, and lead to negative effects overall in your metabolic health. That's when it can be problematic. And your dentist would probably agree for your teeth. Yes. Not yes, ideal. That as well. And <laughs> sugar, the difference between sugar and other types of carbohydrates is it's just going to get into your bloodstream really quick. So if you drink a, a soda, that's going to go into your bloodstream almost immediately as opposed to, let's say you had, um, you know, the same amount of calories from, from fruit, it's not going to go into your bloodstream as quickly and it's going to, you have more time to, to get rid of it so it doesn't cause your, your uh, blood sugar level to go really high. Um, that's, that's kind of the difference between, you know, liquid sugars and, uh, whole food sources of sugar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause some people then will lump all sugar together and say sugar is sugar. So sugar from fruit is the same as sugar from a candy bar, which I mean, I think seems like common sense that it's not, but I think people might still be confused about that as well. So you're saying eat sugar and fruit. Yeah. And well, it's the same structure. It's just a matter of the delivery of it. Like if you're taking it in a candy bar, um, you're going to get, you know, 20 grams of sugar with uh, no fiber oftentimes. And that's going to, that's going to cause it to digest a little bit differently. But even sugar from a candy bar, like if you're having, let's say you had a candy bar and it's a hundred calories and you know, that, that is a part of your overall, you know, energy needs for the day. You need, like, for example, for me, I need about 3,000 calories a day on average. So me having 150 calorie, you know, uh, piece of candy before a workout is not a big deal at all. Like, it's going to have almost yeah. no impact on my on my health. And that's where it's it's all, you know, context, you know, having a whole bunch of sugary foods can just lead to overeating. And that's just one of the main reasons. I mean, if you have a piece of cake. And, and again, most of the time, sugary foods are also high in fat. And like, for example, a piece of cake could be 600 calories, one slice. And, and most people don't need 600 calories on top of, you know, whatever else they're eating. And that's when, you know, sugar becomes so bad is, you know, demonized so much is when it's eaten, it's the forms that it's eaten in um, that we tend to overeat. And, and that tends to lead to uh, negative health effects because we're overeating, not necessarily the sugar itself. Okay. So then after that one, maybe we'll lead into carbs because people will say all carbs are bad in the same way that all sugar is bad or carbs are fine. So can you explain? I mean, I know there's different types of carbs, so this is probably a tough one, but what what do you see that are myths surrounding carbs versus the truth, I guess. Yeah, the two main like major myths around carbs is like carbs cause your insulin level to go up. So it makes you gain weight. Um, and, and this is just nonsense. Like every study that's ever done where we compare high carb to low carb diets when the calories are equated, 
weight loss is the same. This is that's not how insulin works. I studied insulin in depth during my PhD. It is not this weight gain you know, hormone that's going to cause you to gain weight because you're eating carbs. So that's one of the main myths around that that scares people is well, carbs raise insulin, so insulin causes weight gain, which is completely false. You know, weight gain is going to be dependent on overall energy intake and energy balance. And the other main um, thing I see about carbs is kind of uh, it's a twisting of the truth that I just discussed in the, you know, in the last point where if our blood sugar is too high for too long, that can lead to negative health effects. And what a lot of people do will say, oh, well, carbs raise blood sugar. So blood sugar going higher than baseline is going to kill you. And the reality is it's not blood sugar going up after your meal that's supposed to happen. Like after you eat a meal, your blood sugar is supposed to go up. It'll come back down. The, when blood sugar gets harmful is when it doesn't come back down. And that's not because you're eating carbs. It's because your metabolism's not working properly. And so that's another like way that people try to make carbs seem very, you know, harmful is they say, you know, they raise blood sugar and increased blood sugar is associated with negative health outcomes. And, and it's just a twisting of the truth. Um, and it's not, you know, if you're eating carbs, your blood sugar is going to go up. It's going to go come back down. You're going to have, if you have normal metabolism, you're not going. To, it's not going to have any negative health effect. And if you're not eating carbs and you're only eating fat, that's going to lead your blood triglycerides to go up and stay up. And those are associated with, you know, increased blood triglycerides are associated with negative health outcomes as well. And so, you know, it's it, it's just ignoring one risk factor and focusing on another. And it's only done to convince people that a low carb diet is, you know, somehow superior to eating carbs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's fiber rich carbs too, right? Versus a lot of times when people are saying carbs are bad, they're talking about refined carbs, chips, cookies, crackers, whatever. Not that those things are particularly bad, but they're kind of all conflated and lumped into the same category. The most important point in in that is those aren't high carb foods. Most of those things are high carb and high fat, like chips, Mm -hmm. cookies, crackers, like those are all at least like about 40 to 50% fat as well. And that's, that's where a lot of people's understanding of like, carbohydrates and in, in nutrition, you know, just having some understanding of nutrition helps because those aren't high carb foods. And, and people lump those into high carb foods and use those to demonize carbs. And you can easily just say you can demonize fats in that way. Chips are fried in oil. They're mostly fat. Cookies usually have butter and other fat sources as well. Um, and, and, and the calories from fat is usually about equal to the calories from carbohydrates in those foods. Mm-hmm. All right. So you already talked about seed oils. Um, there's a lot of stuff going around out there about seed oils and, you know, <laughs> doctors that are talking about seed oils and doctors actually talking about a lot of these things. So it gets really confusing, especially when you attach an MD to your Instagram handle. Um, so what is, where does the research stand on seed oils and vegetable oils? They, you know, can be interchanged if people don't know what seed oils are. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the amount of demonization around these is is really, it's, it's kind of weird, but it, it's a reflective, reflective of like the way that, that nutrition on Instagram just kind of moves in this, uh, in this way and they jump on trends. Like seed oils are not harmful, like all of the evidence, and I, I cover this in, my, in many different posts that I've done, but um, all of the evidence shows that when we eat more seed oils as opposed to like butter, for example, if we replace saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats from seed oils, 
there's a slight reduction in overall cardiovascular disease. Now, these things, as I mentioned earlier, I don't necessarily recommend eating a bunch of oil of any kind because it's a concentrated source of fat and can just lead to overall um, excessive energy consumption. But if we're going to compare the effect or the inflammatory effect, because everyone says seed oils are inflammatory, of different types of oils, butter is going to be like number one. Butter and lard and, and these other high saturated fat foods. And there's been multiple studies where they feed people you know, multiple tablespoons of seed oils versus multiple tablespoons of butter per day, or they feed it just in one occasion and they measure inflammatory cytokines within the blood and look at what's causing inflammation. And saturated fats drive inflammation more than polyunsaturated fats from seed oils. I don't know. Um, I, I think a lot of the, the misinformation just comes from people trying to make butter, uh, you know, cool again and, and just demonizing, you know, the, the popular nutrition narrative, which is like, you know, eat less butter and, and uh, you know, doing that by saying seed oils are going to kill us because um, when we started eating more of them as a population, you know, that's when we started becoming obese. And the reality is that correlation, although true, is, is really silly to think about because between 19, we started eating a lot of seed oils as a population in 1950, like, over the last 70 years, a lot of stuff has changed. <laughs> we, we are less active. We have different types of jobs. We have more access to processed food overall. Um, in the 1950s, you know, if you went to, um, if you were sitting in a waiting room, there's probably not going to be a vending machine with junk food right there. Like the, the food environment has changed dramatically since then. And so many other factors have changed besides seed oils. Um, and this is a big justification that people use. Well, when we introduce seed oils to the food supply, that's when, you know, health got worse. And and it's just disingenuous. People are using that to manipulate you because if you don't know any better and you hear that, it makes sense. You know, you hear it and you're like, oh, wow, when we started eating these things, like this person showed a graph of when we started eating more of them. But you could plot that graph with like, anything use of technology throughout your day and you could plot that graph with increased rates of obesity because a lot of stuff has changed over the last 70 years you can plot that graph against processed food you can plot that graph against uh, use of vehicles for transportation like you can plot it against so many different things and all of these things have changed over the last 50 years and people single out that association um, to try to scare people away from eating them. And, and they also should, you know, talk about like whether highly processed and butter, you know, isn't, of course, butter's processed as well. I don't know why people say that, um, you know, butter, butter is also processed, but you know, these, these seed oils, um, data shows that they're not harmful to health. There's a lot of stories going around the wellness industry, and I'm not really sure why, um, wanting to demonize it, demonize these oils. But, you know, if you're having a little bit of canola oil or sesame oil or whatever type of oil as a part of your overall diet, like it's not a big deal. And it's not something that anyone should be afraid of or, or try to avoid at all costs. Like many influencers will try to make you feel. Is it also, um, there's a lot of seed oils in ultra processed foods or in takeout and restaurant food. And so then if people say, oh, I eliminated seed oils, and I feel 10 times better. It's just, it could be, you know, I, I cut out a bunch of processed foods and I'm making more food for myself at home versus eating takeout and restaurant food all the time. 
Oh, hundred percent. I mean, that's what they use in in every every restaurant is using them because they're cheaper, and it, it it's not it's not the seed oils. It's the fact that you're eating restaurant food that's doused in oil. Um, right. And it, if it was doused in any oil, the effect would be the same. Yeah. Do you uh, still recommend, or do you yourself use olive oil predominantly? Yeah, that's pretty much all I use. Um, The the positive benefit, like of all, when we look at the effect of oils on our health, there's not really a positive for any oil. Like there's negatives for butter and then everything else is pretty much neutral. But olive oil has like a positive, like any studies when people eat more olive oil, there seems to be like positive outcomes overall. And, And that seems to be the oil that has the strongest evidence for positive outcomes, even for cooking and baking and all these other things. Um, and so that's predominantly what I use, but I'll, I, I, I minimize oil use overall, unless I'm doing like, you know, some type of salad dressing or anything like that, where more oil would be appropriate. But like for cooking and stuff, I'm typically not using a lot of oil just because overall, like I'd rather get my calories from things that are more filling, uh, than, than a bunch of oil. Right. I just actually saw something good come from TikTok. I saw somebody make their own olive oil spray. Have you ever done that? Uh, I've, I've seen something like that. Uh, I mean, they sell, they sell olive oil sprays at the, at they the do. store though. They do. Yeah. I just was interested in trying it and just not buying all of the aerosol ones just to see if it worked. And so I got one of the, dark glass bottles with just like a regular spray bottle and you just put three parts olive oil one part water and you just make your own so you can just keep refilling it and you don't have to buy oh nice ones from the store and it works you just shake it a ton before you use it but it works so well and it's just i guess cheaper because olive oil in the bottle is usually cheaper than like constantly buying those aerosol yeah, sprays. No, I, I, I didn't, I tried that once a long time ago and it didn't work, but I did. Oh really? I didn't mix it with water and now it makes yeah, sense. I think like, that's, that's the trick. Yeah. That, I said, missed a step. Yeah. <laughs> it said four parts oil, one part water, but that was a little too, or no, maybe I can't remember the exact ratio I did, but something like that. You can add more water if you're spray bottle gets a little like gunked up um but yeah whatever mixture we did you can also google it i'm sure somebody has a direction on how to do it but yeah i posted it yeah you should do it i posted it and it's funny because a bunch of women in their 60s and 70s responded to me who follow me they were like oh i've been doing this for years how did you just find (laughs) out about this i was like i don't know i thought i discovered this (laughs) new amazing hack tiktok Um, is bringing it back bringing back the old school exactly talk about simple and boring right this simple boring thing that people have been doing for years well we didn't get through the whole list i want to respect your time um I definitely want to direct people to your Instagram, um, which is, can you just share your handle right now? No need to. Yeah, it's Dr. Adrian Chavez, but it's dr.adrian.chavez. If you just, you know, type that into Instagram, you will be able to find my account. And I have like 20,000 followers or something. So like it's the one, because there's a lot of Adrian Chavez apparently and Dr. Adrian Chavez. Like there's multiple. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I have to get like, 
you know, email addresses with numbers after them and stuff. I'm like, I thought I would be the only one. Um, but, <laughs> but apparently uh, there's others. And so, um, yeah, you can find me on there uh, on Instagram is the best place. And I'll also put a link in the show notes so people can quickly click through that. Um, but other topics we're going to talk about, I'll just direct people to your Instagram because I know you cover it there. So dairy, we're going to talk about organic produce, animal versus vegetable sources of protein, food sensitivities, like people think that they have a gluten allergy, probably not. Um, food sensitivity, testing, salt, leaky gut, collagen supplements, protein powder, all of these things you have either already discussed or probably will discuss because I know you answer questions all the time. So people can find out more from you about those topics at your Instagram. Um, one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? So it really comes down to uh, committing to the boring stuff that I mentioned <laughs> earlier and really understanding that this is a lifelong process, like the fitness, wellness, whatever you want to call it, is not, you know, this trendy thing that you're going to do in your 20s and then you got it, you're going to give up in your 30s or, or, you know, 30s and give up in your 40s. Like you have to really see this as a long term commitment in, in, approach it as such and and look forward 40 30 years from now and, and think about where you want to be then and and start you know living your lifestyle in a way that's going to take you there from a health perspective because we can't control everything but by doing the right things now just like you know with investing in money and you know investing in like stock market and stuff like that like you have to be consistent over time, and that's what leads to benefits. And I've been doing living this lifestyle for like 15 years now, um, more than that. And and it blows my mind, like how much you know, how little effort it takes now. And and I, I'm in better shape than I was. Well, kind of getting over COVID right now, but normally in better shape than I was in my 20s. And it, it's because I made that investment, you know, 15 years ago and started really changing my lifestyle and focusing on what I'm eating. And um, that's the way that you have to approach it. And that's what's going to really lead to long term sustainable change that, that's going to, you know, it's going to be worthwhile. It's going to be well worth the effort that you put in. But when you when you go um, in these 12 week programs and things like that and you focus on what, what you can do in 12 weeks and not 12 years, um, that's really what gets people caught up in this cycle of, you know, gaining, losing, gaining, losing, and never really building better lifestyle habits. So, so that's my recommendation is really focus on the long, long term uh, when it comes to your health, because that that's what's important. Yeah. Love that. I agree a hundred percent and very well said. Aside from your Instagram, is there any other place that people can follow and find you or is that the best place? So I have a podcast called The Nutrition Science Podcast as well. And I have not started publishing on there again, but I, I'm planning on picking that back up and going full force with it. I used to I used to run this pretty I had hundreds of episodes a long time ago, but um I am uh you know, getting back to it and I want to get focused back on it. And, and that's why I'm doing more interviews because uh, I enjoy getting on podcasts, it's probably my favorite way of teaching. So I want to get back to it. Awesome. Well, I'll link that. And it sounds like there's a whole uh, slew of episodes that people can dive into and binge like enough, like, Netflix <laughs> yeah, show, right? there's a, there's a lot there still. <laughs> 
Okay, awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time. And I look forward to everybody coming over to your Instagram page and loving it as much as I do. And I look forward to staying connected with you off air. And just thanks again so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.